From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey everybody, this is Book Circle Online. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today to talk with Alexandra Fuller, whose new book is called Leaving Before the Rains Come. Now, the Washington Post describes it as a divorce memoir for people who hate divorce memoirs. I like that description a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. me too. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. As someone who says in the book that you hate divorce memoirs and that literature, is it weird that you've now written a book that's like in that category? Okay, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's definitely not only about that at all. And I think that what happened was that for a long time we had men finding themselves by, you know, climbing Everest or going out west or, you know, these very sort of physical ways of getting in possession of who they were. I mean, this was when we were really looking at at men getting out of what it was their parents were sort of expecting of them or taking on the family role. And then when women started to do it, we had women... You know, we had Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, Pray, Love. We had Cheryl Strayed, Wild, which are gorgeous, wonderful books. And I love the voices in those books. But it's very different when you're now a middle-aged woman, as I am, and you've got three children. And you can't go off to the base of Mount Everest and find yourself. You're going to have to find yourself in the laundry and find yourself in the context of motherhood and find yourself in place. And, you know, so for me, this is not a book about divorce. It's a book about which so many women, I think, recognize that moment when you pick your head up out of the diaper pail and realize however exciting you are, however, whatever your ride is, as the poet Charles Wright would say, the only journey that matters is the journey to the interior. Um, And that's really, I mean, that's the job of the memoirist, which is my job. Um, But I also love that line from Charles Wright. And it's taken from his long poem. um, And it, you know, which is a sort of book length poem, but that little fragment I kept on my computer for years. The journey to the interior is all that matters. Everyone knows that. Yeah. So is that just like a fault of like the marketing? It's just easy to call it like a d- book about divorce. A divorce happens in the book, and yeah. I think that okay. we have become very used to bumper sticker ways of explaining ourselves to each other because we're now as, you know, um, we're a sort of, we're 140 characters attention span. And, you know, I think one of the things that I'm in reaction to is um, that that we're going to lose nuance if we do that. And it also makes us less subversive if we're able to just slap a bumper sticker on the car that yeah. says we're a feminist or says that we're, you know, whatever we are. I, I call that bumper sticker feminism, you know. I know what you mean. It can be, like, summed up very shortly. And it yeah. it misses the nuance of, yeah, but you've got children, you've got a life, you've got a, you know, this other complicated thing. And you come from, all of us come from, yeah. you know, different backgrounds and, and different places. So there isn't one single truth that can stick on a bumper sticker. Oh, I I like, that's well put. I mean, I think too, if your last book was like a love letter to your mother, this is very much like a love letter to your father as well. Like, Right, yeah, actually, and a love letter to myself. Yeah. Because ultimately this was that journey. I mean, there's so much of him in here. That's absolutely right. Um, But at the end of it, he was, he's, I mean, he's iconic. um, And he, 
courted eviction from every tribe that would own him. And that, in a way, is what, you know, this book really becomes about a woman who realizes that I can't be prey to somebody else's disappointment for the rest of my life. And if I'm, you know, going to be in possession of my voice, I need first to be in possession of my mind. And I'm not going to be in possession of my mind if what has smothered my mind is the voice in my head saying, you're not enough. Sure. And I think also, like, that goes to, like, your whole family. Like, I think a lot of the readers would be surprised by, like, the way your sister was, like, acting, too. Like, it was clear that you, like, love your sister, but for her to be, like, this is going to be very hard for me if you, like, get a divorce. It right. just, like, I don't know, that shocked me. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's one of the things, again, a nuance. So I come from this family who has been cemented together by a lot of early tragedy. I mean, we grew up in sort of, we grew up as a family, including my parents, you know, this small unit in a very violent time. It was almost as if we were sort of made as a family under pressure. Mm -hmm. And so it's made us, I think, phenomenally close. And I think that gives me, which is great, um, the ability to write really honestly and freely about them because we were made under such pressure that honestly, me writing honestly about the way that we maybe I haven't always been sort of supportive of each other or the the massive political differences we have or our religious differences or so on. I mean, it's not going to kill you. Kill, you know, we yeah. realize that, well, that's not going to kill you. Oh, how interesting. And how did your parents, I, I'm curious why like Rhodesia in the middle of the war, they like moved and they picked that location. Yeah. Like, was there a specific reason? They liked reason? the view. The view, really? Yeah. Of the Mozambique Hills, where the minefields were. I mean, they have... Um, I'd sort of like to say of my parents, they're wonderful parents. I adore them. They have the world's worst parenting skills. And they also had, I mean, I think my mother especially has a sort of fatal degree of romanticism driving her. It's almost as if she wrote a myth in her head about who she was and then went to live it, regardless of how that myth was, was or was not playing out. And an enormous amount of my sort of work and narrative has to do with the fact that, you know, you we were of the 100,000 white families who were actively oppressing the 6 million black families in Zimbabwe and, and that a war came of that. And, you know, I think so much of my story is a sort of cautionary tale around um, believing everything your parents tell you or your government yeah. tells you, your church tells you, or your schools tell you. Yeah. And, like, in discussing your father, you said that, like, people in a recent trip there, like, kind of viewed him like as, like, a martyr for, like, 500 years around. You wrote that in the book? Like, he, as, like, a nice, like, person, like, I'm Not helpful. martyr so not... much as saint. A saint, okay. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Would you, was he always like that and you never saw it? Or was that, like, a change that happened? No, he was not always like okay. that. Um, I mean, I think they... Well, the other, the other curious thing that happens um, when you write a memoir is the happening of literature, the putting down of story makes it seem as if it was preordained as if there's this plot line that everyone could have seen from the beginning. But, you know, my parents moved to Rhodesia because it was the last country run by whites in in Africa other than South Africa. And they were racist and they believed that, you know, they wanted to stay in a country that was white run. And and they were sort of very open about that. And they both fought in the war on the side of, of the white, you know, government and, and then somehow raised me, 
but in a way, of course they did, because I was 11 when the war ended. And so I had, I was sort of coming of age at the same time that I realized everything had been told me had been the kind of brutal lies that get told in order to send oh. people to war. So um, you were just old enough to realize that? No, yeah. not just old enough, crucially old enough. You oh. can be too old and you can be too young. But if you're 11, it's just pre-adolescence. Yeah. And you're just, as everything's forming in you, just as you're beginning to ask those questions, Rhodesia changes its name to Zimbabwe. Your white government disappears. It's a completely black government. You lose your farm. You are sun- suddenly not all the lies that you've been told. Yeah. Um, and it's made of me, I think, a very... It made of me probably almost an instant writer because the one thing it did is made me question everything. Hmm. But in your father, though, I, I love said that like boring is like the greatest sin you could have to be boring. Yeah. Like a boring life. I don't right. remember the way he phrased it. But um, I don't think the writing is boring, but I feel like a non-writer would view writing, you have to like sit down, you have to be alone. It's like isolating. Like what does he right. think about you being a writer? Um, I think he keeps hoping that I will grow up and get a real job okay. one day. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I think the thing is, is that they really live. The wonderful thing about having my parents and my sister in my life is, um, I mean, first of all, I am like wildly in love with them because they don't necessarily, you know, they're not sort of cookie cutter parents or cookie cutter sister. Uh, I would say not at all. At all. Yeah. Um, and, but it really sort of puts you in your place. And, um, so the day that this book was published, you know, you sort of expect your family to phone up and say, congratulations, your book's published. And my sister phoned from Zambia to say that she had amoebic dysentery and wanted to tell me about that. And sort of there were, you know, there's really no room in that conversation to say, oh, my book's coming out. Um, and at the same time, they don't read what I write. I mean, it's not the most important thing ever. Somebody always has malaria. There's always, you know, one of my mother's dogs has just been zapped by a snake or, there's crocodiles in the fish pond, or there's a real thing going on around which I think my writing probably feels a bit precious. Interesting. Now, I don't tell me if this uh, makes me come seem ignorant, but like, you went to college, obviously. But what kind of like formal education was there in while growing up? Um, yes, like, English is a tricky language till you get the hang of it. Okay. <laughs> No, it was like this phenomenally brilliant education because it really? was reserved for 100,000 people. So all oh. the resources of a country, and I, you know, I say this over and over again, I write as a woman realizing that immediately that puts you in, as a, in the world as a second class citizen. That's just that. Yeah. But I had this tremendous privilege of being white. And I think that most people here don't get to recognize their privilege. I saw how violent it was to have unrecognized privilege because I saw what the, you know, the real outcome of yeah. that was. It, it, I mean, it's literally life and death. Um, and so I had this phenomenally brilliant education. Um, and for the first, you know, until I was 12, I was educated in a co-ed school and then I went to a girls only school. What was so strange about it was I had an education that you, you, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to even get an education like that in this country. I mean, we were doing Latin. We were doing physics and chemistry. We were doing, um, you know, by the time I got to university, I had done probably about 14 or 15 of Shakespeare's plays. I'd done all the sonnets. You know, we were, we were, it was really, really? grounded in sort of um, the classics. 
and you know we read widely and we were doing philosophy and biology and i mean it was a, a very 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 rigorous education i'm shocked and yeah. that, I'm sorry, that's because you were white in Zimbabwe during this time? It's because I was white during Zimbabwe during this time. But when Mugabe came to power in 1980, he made education a human right, as it should be for all, uh, you know, everyone, yeah. black and white. And so as a result, Zimbabweans are among them. I, I think I'm right in saying that until 2000, they were the most literate people on the continent wow. of Africa. And their literacy rates challenged those of the U.S., that all went to pieces when what Mugabe saw that what you got with that kind of education are people with a voice. And in 2004, between 2000 and 2004, he, I think something like 70,000 teachers, uh, which is pretty much every teacher in Zimbabwe, either went into exile or hiding and certainly left their school. Because they were, wow. you know, the first thing you go after are the intelligentsia. So Mugabe did this very contradictory thing. He gave everyone a voice, saw the power that it gave people, and took it away. But we remain an incredibly literate uh, society. So Zimbabweans, we had a Nobel Literature Prize winner. We've had numerous African Cane, Cane Prize um, award winners. We've had First Guardian um, award winners. Um you know, and the the Booker Prize we've had shortlisted. Wow. I mean, we're storytellers. It's what we do. And we're very well educated. And, you know, I think my biggest prayer and hope for Zimbabweans is that they can keep on using their voice, that they don't leave, that they still somehow find the courage. But for us, it's a life and death situation. It's wow. not trivial. Now, does your work have like notoriety in Zimbabwe or is it just another story to them? Like, to us, you know, we're Americans, and it's, like, one Zimbabwe story. But to them, it's, like, all their stories are Zimbabwean. Many of them. You know, do, is it, like, I don't want to say special, but is it, like, different to them? Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is it's very rare to hear an honest account from the point of view of, of someone who was, say, on the, on the in the family of the oppressors. Are you saying who, like, no, recognizes their privilege? Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty rare place to be because who, who wants to do that it doesn't make you feel seem very popular <laughs> right and i think you really need to have a sense of humor of you doing that and to, yeah. and the gift of self-deprecation which we have in bucket loads in zimbabwe um but i would i mean i i think for me i, I don't know that this is special or different or you know it's so different when you are there because you really are all in the in the same boat and you're just yeah, you're not. I don't think anyone says all oh, this is special or different. Okay, it's just another story. It's just another tapestry that makes the you know all our stories make up the history of where we, of who we are. Okay, I guess they're just like I'm shocked because there's so many like misconceptions about like Africa in general, mm. um, stemming from it being like a collection of countries and yet we view it as like a sole entity. Like, I mean, I think about Africa and I think about, like, the Lion King and I think about, like, James Earl Jones getting off the bus and cried the bill of the country and his, like, suitcase is stolen immediately. And it's, like, not, you know, um, Africa's talked about in American media, usually in conjunction with, like, AIDS. Mm. And so that's why your perspective and um, I've never heard anybody write about it the way you did about... Um, in America, we're still, like, coming up with a name for it. We're calling it the gay disease. And yet you are seeing it happen to, like, men, women, children. Right. And for us, you know, we, yes. And for us, it was a silent war. I mean, the AIDS epidemic was 
We recognized long before anyone in the U.S. did that the, it was ridiculous to call it a gay disease. And then, of course, that remains ridiculous. And that that actually got taken up by the dictators, you know, the sort of horrible cadre of African dictators to go after homosexuals. And I think that that really means that it is incumbent on us to be precise about our speech and nuanced about our speech and not speak in general terms. And that stemmed from America's, like, discrimination against them? They picked up on that? The U.S. discrimination against homosexuals, yeah. correct. And yes. that's how, wow. I, I mean, look, there was always discrimination against homosexuals in Southern Africa, but now this gave them, you know, the Greater authority yeah. from the West. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we talk about, like, AIDS in Africa, unfortunately, a lot. I've never heard of, like, that perspective of, like, yeah, we, we've seen it happening, like, from an African mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said that in the book you don't especially consider yourself to be African anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you consider yourself to be? Okay. Yeah. It's just exhausting. I think that you can hold on to a handful of labels and then you're spending all your time defending that. Yeah. La- those labels. And, I mean, look, if you were to ask me, am I, am I a feminist? I would say absolutely. And. I would prefer to be vegetarian, but I won't faint if someone just, you know, gives me a piece of meat. And sure. I'm, you know, I, I imagine that my politics are exceedingly left in today's political climate, but I would say I'm more or less liberal. Um, I can't avoid the fact that I'm white, even though race is a totally false construct. Right. I seem to be what people would call straight, even though I think sexuality is, you know, on a continuum. And so I think that's where we get so confused as we start saying, well, I'm this and I now I'm my whole identity is wrapped up with this particular label. And it can get so exclusive to the point that it just it breaks down any possibility of dialogue. Okay. And then you just have a couple of people slapping monologues at each other. <laughs> Do you think that your answer would be different, though, if your, like, outward appearance was, like, more presented more as, like, stereotypically African? Like, Chamanda Adicha. You know, like, you look at her and she says, I'm from uh, Nigeria. And you're like, yeah, I believe it. Like, do you think right. you would feel like your identity was more African? I mean, I think I would have... I've, I've written on the book that, that, that this really is a book of, uh, about you know, woman, me, in search of possession of herself. Mm-hmm. And what I realized at the end of the day is all I have is possession of my mind and my voice. Those other things were always too wobbly for me. I mean, when I was 18, I was violently in love with Zambia and Zimbabwe. And I, uh, when I'm with Zimbabweans, I become invisible. I have a very Zimbabwean sense of humor, a very Zimbabwean sensibility, um, my the way of viewing the world is very Zimbabwean. So I'm in the water where I just swim around with everyone else and I kind of can't feel the temperature anymore. So yeah, that, but the Zimbabweans will now say to me, you sound different. Um, You look different. I mean, I've lived here for 20 years. So my accent's wobbly. It's all over the place. Yeah, And you know, Yes, and I'm constantly being challenged, I think, in a way that no one would dare challenge a black African woman. Who is going to ask a black African woman, do you consider yourself African? It's just ridiculous. But I think particularly in the U.S., we're desperate for handholds. And so this really is a story about letting go of that, of all of that. That doesn't take away the importance. In fact, it makes it more important that you drill down to the bedrock of your authentic self. Wow. How interesting. 
speechless. Just kidding. Um, no, that's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I've just, I had a, I wanted to ask a question that I'm going to ask now, but I just like feel like it's like inappropriate. <laughs> um, ask away. I, I mean, it's not that appropriate. I just was curious then about like what, um, your ex's Charlie, what his family thought about him, like bringing back like an African bride. Like, is it like John Smith, like bringing back Pocahontas, like in their mind, you know? Um, it's like based on misconceptions and like labels. Right. Yeah. I think they were relieved that I'm quote unquote white. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. And then I think what was so shocking is that I'm African, though. Like, I'm so, like, my sensibilities are so Southern African. So, yeah, it's confusing. And I think it's, it's especially confusing for other people, which is why it became increasingly important that it not be confusing for me. That I, you know, that I, there's a wonderful line from Pico Ayo. Um, I'm just a huge fan of his work. And he wrote this wonderful book called The Man Inside My Head about following Graham Greene's sort of traveling in Graham Greene's shadow. And at one point he mentions going to a meditation center somewhere and being around these monks who meditate, you know, a great deal, months and months and years and years. And he says the absolute peace that comes with absolute self-knowledge. I mean, in other words, there is no way for you to let yourself down because you've reached the bottom of who you are. You aren't in reaction anymore. You're not in reaction to your own history. You're not in reaction to the judgment of your husband, your father, your ex-in-laws your ex-husband your children your culture yeah you and but it's incredibly hard work you're not even in reaction to your own biology or your own ancestry i mean think about how much of you has ended up in this spot because of a decision made by your biological forefathers and foremothers and you know for me Breaking out of all of that, breaking out of the need to be somehow coherent. The greatest gift of all of that was I have such an incoherent history that I could just say, well, the quickest way out of this is in, to go deeply, deeply in. And I know, I'm sure it's like a collection of many things you did to like find that place. But like, what like advice do you give to like a listener who like wants to like also accomplish that? Sit still. And be. Okay. <laughs> For a long time. Wow. It's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and we have so little stillness. And we create so much doing. And we have very little being. And the most uncomfortable thing, often when I'm I'm doing a, a writer's, um, you know, when I'm teaching writing to students, one of the things that I'll have students do is they come prepared with, with pens and papers and computers and, you know, everything you can think of. And I say, just put that all away and just sit for 20 minutes. Fold your legs and your hands and shut your eyes and just sit for 20 minutes. And the agony of not doing for 20 minutes. And they get quite aggressive. You know, I'm busy. I've got a lot to do. And I go, I know, just try and be... Because without that, I think we're, we remain in constant reaction. And these are adults, right? Yes. That I can't sit still. Right. Fascinating. Because the, the way you describe it, it's like a kindergarten class, you know, fidgeting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I love a good fidget. <laughs> Does that Africa still exist that you grew up in? The Zimbabwe? Does like... anywhere of anywhere exist that anyone ever uh, grew up in? No. Yeah. I'm saying, is it still possible? So it's not possible. No. Is it possible to like grow up the way you did? I really hope not. Oh, really? I think that would be awful to have that 
possibility in Africa, uh, which, yeah, exists. It exists everywhere that an elite control all the resources, all the privilege, most of the votes, most of the power, most of the education, most of the access to health care, and a huge proportion of the population, um, you know, are still really suffering. And I am grateful that that doesn't exist on the basis of color anymore, but the fact that it exists on the basis of power and elitism, as it does in this country, as it does most places, is really a travesty, and it's not leading us anywhere good. Um, I I agree. I think that's so interesting, your answer, though, because in my mind, I was thinking about, like, the positive things, like your connectedness with nature and, like, your Uh relationship with time. Uh It's just so, like, rigid here. Oh, I think that's possible anywhere. I think you just need to throw away your television, put away your cell phone, disconnect from everything that is stopping you from being connected to land. Uh And, you know, I think one of the things, certainly for me, it was a challenge raising children here because of that, because that was really important for me that, but yeah, you can create that space anywhere. And here, above all, I mean, we're blessed with not having war on our soil. I mean, we have outsourced our wars. So it's not that we're at peace. We just aren't having to experience war ourselves. The wars that we create, we manage to send away. But yeah, I think it's very important for me that um, that was something I brought forward from my childhood and have, yeah, worked hard at trying to keep for myself, not out of any sense of nobility or anything, but I just am bad at being disconnected. I begin to get sort of frightened and um just I just don't do it well. I mean, I, I can't drive in traffic. I'm freak out in long lines at, traf- at grocery stores because I could never make the, the credit card reader read my credit card. I mean, I'm such an anachronism because I think I grew up. Yeah. You were talking about raising your children, like, with those things. Were you, like, successful? Like, do you see that in them? Yeah. The, the amazing thing about I've got a 21-year-old and her favorite media is radio. And she doesn't you know, really do much of the sort of speed she reads and she, uh, she did this wonderful, she's, she, um, yeah, she did a wonderful cartoon of ways in which my mother has taught me to self comfort. And she said, done a really bad thing and sort of drew a picture of herself freaking out. And then the next picture shows her doing all the things that I would do to self comfort, make tea, go for a walk, um, read a book about a nice soothing murder set in an English village, you know, slow down. Okay. <laughs> Those are all very like anti-technology coping mechanisms. <laughs> um, just to be clear in the book, you went and you were diagnosed as bipolar because you lied and like thought about suicide and like had an affair. Like that was a wrong, like that was a in humor, right? That was not a correct diagnosis. Well, I don't think he was in humor, but it was not a correct diagnosis. Okay, good. Right? That, I mean, that to me just was like terrifying because yeah. I was like, oh, good. How many people is he prescribing like pills to? Right. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I think that is it, right? I think that there is this way in which um, if as a woman you sort of say, this is so not working for me. I mean, look, there really is, I think, in relationship, a time and a place at which if you're in a relationship that feels like solitary confinement, you become increasingly split 
you're one personality outside the context of the marriage and another personality inside the context of the marriage because your negotiation begins to be a withholding mm -hmm. of self. And so, yeah, you can definitely start to feel split. I would never mess with that term because my mother is actually um, bipolar and I saw what real insanity looked like. And when he said that, it felt to me like he did not you know, this doctor that, I mean, I just hadn't slept a lot. I needed my marriage to end. It was very stressful. Yeah. And, but to medicate my way into the marriage, it was a little bit like I had slipped off the page of a sort of 18th century novel. And my next stop was going to be the attic. Yeah. I, I mean, I laughed reading it and I was like, I hope I'm correct in laughing. <laughs> <laughs> like this is funny, right? <laughs> As someone who writes about your life, do you feel like obligated to keep like continuing the story and like updating us on where you are? No. You do not? No. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like whenever you need to like get it out and like write the book. I guess, you know, I'm I'm wondering like are we going to keep like some memoirs have like books from every like stage of their life. Yeah. It's not in your plan at all. Yeah, I can see how that might happen to me. Okay. But I, you know, the thing is too, is I think there's this, I don't know, for me anyway, this misconception that as a writer, you get to choose your story. And that's just not true. I mean, my stories always choose me. I try, listen, I have tried from the beginning to be a novelist and I wrote nine wildly unsuccessful novels. I was fired by my agent. My, you know, then husband went to go and climb active volcanoes of Mexico rather than be around me, who was sort of the suicidally rejected writer. And it, you know, I, it wasn't until he left to go and climb active volcanoes of Mexico and rather than be with me. Um, and he had left me this note on his computer that said only to open in the event, an envelope that said only open in the event of my death. And so I, you know, waited till he got to the bottom of the driveway and I ripped this thing open. And it's this boring letter about the mortgage and insurance. <laughs> but at the very end of it, it said, I think you should just write the truth. And I did. And that really, the thing is, is that because by then I didn't think I'd get published, I wrote the truth as if no one would read it. Oh, wow. And that really became something that I realized was needed and powerful and it's true, you know, write what you know. And I don't really know anything or anyone better than I know myself. And so you felt that click in writing the first yeah. book. The yeah. first that got published. Right. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, do you know what's like next for you coming up? You know, I think, okay, so another analogy I have about writing is it's, I know the stories are coming the way that when you're pregnant, you know, a baby's probably going to pop out at the end of it. At you some point, but you've got to like. just state the okay. thing first. Okay. Um, last question. I thought it was fascinating that you were interviewing your parents about their mm. like, life stories. Are you mm -hmm. going to do anything with that? I, You know, I've got it all archived in my garage, and I hadn't realized how much, how important that was that I have their voices and the nuance of their speech and how valuable that is to me I mean just the sound of their voices and particularly my mother can tell a story in a com in complete paragraphs with the most first of all she's hilarious I mean she sort of sounds like Beatrix Potter if Beatrix Potter was Sarah Palin you know the sort of 
gorgeous okay. language and then these sort of outrageous political statements getting wrapped in there that you just think this is a crime against humanity not to have this written down. And so warm and so funny and so compassionate and so vivid. And then she can just be so shocking in some of her sort of things that she comes out with. And so much of that, if you don't capture it word for word, I feel like I'm sort of doing a disservice. And so for me, those those taped interviews are just precious, but as much personally as for any other reason. Oh, I see. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This yeah, no, thank so you. Fun. Thank you. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Until then, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, iTunes, all the above, and bookcircleonline.com. Thanks.